Don't fuck with me right now. My head. Uh, I'm reading Buddhist books about death. I'm having a heavy week. Uh, you can't dude. mess with me like that. I'm in the ether. You know what I've been reading about, Brad, is this weird phenomenon of, of astronauts who went to the moon or went to space, saw the earth from space, and just get so fucked up philosophically. We just talked about this, right? With Pizzi yeah, Popeye? Yeah, well, it happened to William Shatner. Shatner, yeah. And he's the one who led me down this wormhole. Like, Shatner wasn't the only one. It's basically like half the people who have ever gone to the moon and ever right. gone to space talk about this, like, this deep existential problem they have when they come home. It's fascinating. Is it ever <sighs> positive or is it always negative? No, I th- well, I mean, I think it's positive in the way if you believe in like growth, because you know, right. I think that's part of the pro. You know, every construct we built to handle everything was built on the ground, looking up. Yeah, you know, yeah. for humans. Yeah. yeah, and and it didn't change until like what sixty, seventy years ago. We even have the opportunity to see ourselves like the way we see ourselves. So I think what's happening is a natural progression of humanity. Um, right. trying to deal with it. But it also might be an indication of our slow decay of religion because all that <laughs> shit was written looking at the sky. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and now that we're uh, seeing down, we are God, Brad. <laughs> um, I don't want to get too far into this. You could get me going for like... I'm, I'm going to look into it though because I'm interested in it for sure. Like I want to yeah. hear what happened to old Bill. Well, this is why this is why I love Chris Ross because he is the type of person I could just call, go to the diner. I'm like, yo, let's meet at the Edison Diner. I'll sit there for two hours and I'd say something like this. And he'd kind of like smile at me right. and like chuckle and then just drop like wisdom bombs on my brain about all different <laughs> things that make it feel better. You know, good person to have around. Yeah. So I'm so glad we finally, obviously you can tell from the early set of this interview, I've known Chris since I was like 13 years old, you know? Um, We met early. I kind of got connected with the New Brunswick thing a little, sort of via this band Strength 691. They might have been the first band I knew who kind of was like playing Handy Street and playing in that scene and started connecting around. And I met Ross really early. And Always just like, and not just for me, you know, as the years go on, just one of those people who, you know, there's people who curate a scene who who make fee- people feel bad for coming into it. And that makes scenes, right, like alienating and scary. Right. And it kind of takes the, maybe the, the people with the less than strong will out of the process, right. which isn't good. No, it's called, it's called a gang, I believe. Yeah, you know, and when you're trying to like, <laughs> curate expression and art and community and all those things, like it should be a much warmer landing spot. And I don't know how Chris figured this out at such a young age, but like from the time I met him all the way till now, the mantra has been the same, you know, it's like everything in support of the thing, you know? And um, when he sees like young people or talented people or sweet people, you know, who are like taking an interest in it, the instinct isn't to like kick them away. It's to like, what can I do to like nurture this? Cause it's rad, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And that's like just true. And I think that's why like, you know, if you dig deep enough, the people who build scenes and the people who build culture, like the ones who are like the foundational bricklayers, 
like you don't even know their names. Yeah. You know, because they didn't ask for it and they were doing it for the right reasons and not enough people were watching yet, you know. Um, And that's one of the reasons I thought it would be so rad to have Chris on because to me, he's never someone like out in public or anything that will ever laud himself at all. Probably quite the opposite, you know. Um, So I I use this opportunity to laud for him, I guess. Um, (laughs) A couple standout memories, right? So I got to play the infamous 67 Handy Street when I was like 15 years old. And Super Touch, the old Rev band, was doing, you know, some reunion shows. Something like that. I forget the exact context. And I got to open the show and I'm playing at Handy Street. I'm already like a pig in shit because I've seen a bunch of shows here. I'm just stoked that like my drums are here and I'm playing here and people older than 15 who go to my high school are watching me, (laughs) Uh, you know, and all of a sudden, like, I, I don't even think I know he lived there at the time, but like an angel from the stairway, Ari Katz, the singer from Lifetime, walks down the stairs holding and petting like a miniature dog, um, which in hindsight, I worry about his his hearing, um, but, and comes down and just like very gently nods his head and pets this little dog and watches my band for three songs. And like, <laughs> I don't know if this dude, I don't even know if I've ever met Ari Katz besides for me being a giant Lifetime fan. We might've had some run-ins at some point, but like- that was one of those like super affirming things for me. Like I'm already at Handy Street. This motherfucker just walked down and watched me like I'm here. And even <laughs> though I played that day to like, you know, whatever, 11 people or something, it was a very, a very affirming thing. And then, you know, through the years, he booked me at the Melody quite a bit. I played the Melody a lot. Like I said, it was funny because right around the time the Melody was really kicking and a lot of people were going there. I was probably like 19, 20, and I was living in town already. I knew everyone, but I wasn't old enough to drink. All my <laughs> friends were. So I used to play these all Asia shows at the Melody, and literally everyone else would stay. My whole band, everyone would stay. And I'd end up like leaving, driving a van full of drums, and, uh, <laughs> and I could never stay and party. So no. I missed that part of the Melody. I actually... Um, I did most of my drinking at other places later in the years. But then after that, you know, I became friendly with, he started Nora and I had known, you know, Carl Severson from Ferret and, you know, some of the early guys in that band and became connected with them. And when they started touring, I was just like, I was getting to that point where I, I was disillusioned with everything else I was doing. I just wanted to be on the road. I didn't have like a band that could get me there yet. So I was Nora's roadie, you know, and (laughs) I went out for a lot of tours with those guys. And the highlight one that we sort of touched on last night, where some of the details are a little too scrupulous, but um, we, I, I had flown out to San Francisco and met a group of my friends, a guy named Glenn, Todd, Brian, and and a woman they knew from out there. And we basically hung out for about a week uh, road tripping around California, going to weird places, winding up in Vegas to meet up with Nora, who's on tour. And I'm going to meet up with Nora and then stay on the road while my friends go home. You know, this is what I was doing in those days to 
was like, I have enough money to travel around for a week. And now I have to find a band because that's the only way to get home. I can get from city to city or get some food or any of this, you know? So I pick up Adora and one of the first places we go is Vegas. And man, you know, at that time, Ferret Records was kicking. Those guys were working for them. They had a little cash and it, it got, it got crazy, but it culminated that night. Carl, the singer from Nora was, you know, he had kind of stringy blonde hair and wore a backwards fitted baseball cap, you know, popular at the time. He mm. did not look dissimilar to the singer from Puddle of Mud. Right. Let's just say that. Puddle of Mud, big hit band right now, you know, it's the peak <laughs> of this, that kind of bullshit, you know? Right. And they just put it together. This place put it together themselves. I barely did anything. I barely did anything, but all I know is for two hours of my life that night, I was the drummer from Puddle of Mud, and it was in, it was it was interesting in the strip that. club. But. Yes, the gentleman's establishment. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But uh, yeah, and then you know, all just culminating. But one of the coolest things is like, you know, this never stopped. Right. Like like band after band, you know, if I don't talk to Ross for like three months and, and I hit him up and we talk, he's like, oh, I have this new band. Listen to my demo. I'm like, how did you do this already? Where do you find these people? I don't even know. And he's constantly working. Not only that, he learned to, you know, record and, and he does a lot of that kind of stuff himself, like in his own house now. Really like the most punk rock scenario there ever is. All the while, you know, getting like, master's degrees in like library science and being a teacher and raising kids and, you know, doing the whole thing. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All while doing this. I think it's time to highlight this uh, unicorn of a man, my good friend. And uh, I don't know. Let's play the train. Let's, let's do the thing. Okay, am I supposed to do something here? Because I, I, <laughs> I see a bunch of moving shit, but I don't see any little little lines by my name. 
Um, Benny and I have been do- having a great podcast so far. You're welcome to join or just listen, <laughs> whatever. We're talking about the Beastie Boys and their place in their pantheon. Uh, fair enough. So, uh, any and comments? Brad made the very astute point of saying the Beastie Boys, I suppose, leaned into being white and like Eminem, who's trying to be black. Uh, is, that, is that essentially the... Well, th- yeah, that's why he was judged a little harsher. That, I feel like they, you know, they were such pranksters and they were also just didn't, they didn't sound like hip-hop, really, that was happening mm-hmm. at the time. They well, had their which, own thing. Which era are you talking about, though? The first record. License I mean, I, br- I brought this up in the context. I said, when I think about the Beastie Boys and, like, the Pantheon, like, the big... The, the chronological history of, like, music, what are they remembered as? Like, you know, I was like, they're not, like, great MCs. They're not technically, like, a great band. Like, what are they? Like, what are they actually, like, remembered for and known as? Uh, I mean... Besides for being white guys who did it. <laughs> See, I... I might actually disagree with the both of you. I think that the actual, as much as, you know, there was, you know, the hip hop at that point was really heavily black music. I think that they just made it when they entered in, like they, it was almost irrelevant. They weren't trying to be black that, you know, they weren't trying to fit into that culture necessarily. They were just doing that thing. Mm. Uh, and like, they were just New Yorkers. And right. it, it's like, in as it registers to me, as it registers to me for someone who watched through there, like their first record is, you know, it's a pretty standard for the era, like hip hop record, with the the fact that they're just wackadoo New York punk kids. Yeah, you know, so like instead of being like a white or a black thing, I would go with it as being like a they were like a bunch of New York punks, and thus they weren't focused on anything other than this is who we are. We're not trying to fool anybody. We're just a bunch of clowns. Yeah. Yeah. And that lends credence also to the idea that like a New Yorker is an ethnicity on its own. (laughs) I I don't necessarily disagree with that. I mean, that thing was also, you know, they were also coming from a thing where they were already invested in that culture. They were doing that thing. I would imagine that they were hanging out with those, the people who were movers and shakers in in New York already doing that thing. Whether people took them seriously or not, like, you know, that is a different, that's not for me to say. Well, I was just, I brought up the other day, like Rick Rubin to somebody and they're like, they're like, you know, but he like, he like went to NYU and like, so he's like legit. And I mean, even in my head, because I'm like a, you know, half a white trash guy from New Jersey, I'm like, shit, I didn't even know anyone could afford to go to NYU. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that was still rich, rich people stuff. No, that's real money, you know, (laughs) even then, you know, even even then, you know, when things were slightly more affordable and by slightly, I mean somewhat more (laughs) affordable, like like not totally unaffordable. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. (laughs) So Chris Ross. Nice to have you on the podcast. Finally, you're one of the hardest people to book. Probably, I'm also in, gonna 
I got to tell you, I'm going to interrupt you just to tell you this right off the bat. This yeah. is literally the only podcast I've ever done. I know. <laughs> and this is this is what I was telling to Brad. And I was also having a conversation with our mutual friend, Rick Barnhart, before this started. And I was saying the reason Chris needs to be talked to is because he's been there for everything. And is literally like behind the scenes of... Most of the cool shit people did, especially in and around our scene for like 20 years. But since you're not Gabby and since you're chill about it and you've never wanted to toot your own horn, uh, you know, not enough people know. And here you are. I'm like Tom Brokaw right now. <laughs> On, you know, and, and more people should know because for the people who... um I don't know. I think it sucks sometimes, especially in music. I've been in this industry a long time and seen low character people who talk a lot of shit <laughs> get significantly farther and more attention than high character people who like to let things come to them, you know? So let us let going off track be a place to applaud the real ones, you know? I I will agree with that and, and thank you for that. Um, there is one caveat though, because, you know, personally, like my philosophy about this is it, in some odd ways, it may run counter to the idea of that, of the thing, um, the, the mission statement. And that is like, you're absolutely right. Like I'm, fucking old <laughs> and, like let's not but you know like there's no other there's a hundred nice ways to say it but I, i'm old i've been here for a long time there are dudes who have been around longer than me um and you know i have a significant portion of my life invested in this stuff but also i have found it at many times impossible to explain mm. the dynamic of that thing because of, i'm like i was there and so right. there, there may come a time in this where I'm like, either A, I'm not willing to go on record as talking shit about somebody that spent a bunch of time telling people how it was when it really wasn't. Um, right. I, like, you know, and you and I have had a number of conversations about that, about a yes. number of people. And like, yes. you know, people who actively misrepresented or on purpose or not yeah. to make them to make themselves look good or give them a, a touching point in, sure. you know into the culture, but I don't need to step on those people's toes. Like, I know what happened. You know what yeah. happened. And <laughs> like, I don't need to be, you know, starting problems with people I don't have a problem with. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that makes sense, but it does, you know, like there, there is a certain, it's funny recently. I just, I just watched a, somebody having this revelation. Like you're just never going to understand it if you weren't there. Now, that sounds like fucking old man horseshit, even as I say it. <laughs> um, I mean, and it and it's true, but like, I I have I'm coming at it from a different perspective. I'm coming at it from the perspective of I just went to a show over this this past weekend. Um, there was a show in Milltown, literally a block and a half from my house, being put on um, by a, a, the, someone who was the daughter of a friend of mine who who unfortunately passed away. Um, but very nice, very nice girl. Um, she put the show on and what was cool about it and what was crazy about it, it was 
a band I recorded who were young guys and a young girl or young woman, pardon me. Um, and a bunch of young bands. And my son went and yeah. all his friends were there and they weren't spectators. They weren't like, what's going on? They were active. Right. Like I'm like in my traditional spot. I'm standing. Yeah. Standing next to Josh Grabell and you know, we're yeah. just enjoying the thing. And yeah. I look over and there's Josh, like my Josh, not Grabell. Your son. Yeah. yeah. My son does like, you know, big and, you know, fucking getting down, like getting yeah. down. And all his friends are like f flying around. And I'm like, in a weird way, like it's their time. Yeah. As, you know, like, right, right, like right, this right. is new and you can see the the pure, I'm here and I'm doing the thing. Yeah. And I'm, you yeah. know, and I'm over on one side where I have been for years going, I'm doing the thing too, just from a different perspective. So um, on, that, on that topic though, it's like, it's like, and I'm the same, you know, this idea that like this thing of ours, you know, like if we want to get in like mafia style, right. like this thing of ours, like it means so much, not only to us, but the idea that like, that it carries on, you know what I mean? That it's there for the next person, like the mission statement, like you're talking about. So what exactly are we handing to them? Like, what is the thing? Uh, I mean, honestly, I'm not sure, again, I'm not sure that I could define that necessarily. Like what the thing is, was like, it was a place for me, it was a place where I found a bunch of people who were smart, you know, who had their own issues, you know, a whole wide variety, but they were people who just didn't fit in. And I don't think that that's changed. You know, right. I mean, there is, if I swing into the negative here and, and like, you know, I think at times I think that musically things have suffered um, because I think that some level of innovation has been lost because there's a playbook for all these different kinds and genres of music. And oftentimes when people are like, oh, hey, there's this great new band, I listen and there's a part of me that goes, I've heard this before. Right. And, and then sometimes someone will be like, this is a great band and I'll listen and I'll go, Oh, I haven't heard this before. This is a thing that is a bunch of kids who found something from the heart that's just new. They're not taking somebody else's playbook. They're yeah. not like we have we have a, a, a rule book that says we're going to do all these things and we're going to jump at this point and the singer's going to say these things. It's just real pain or real angst or real anger. And like I'm like, this is great. And so that thing is still there. Yeah. You know, it, but what that thing is, it's just like an amorphous, like, like kind of what place for the place for the lost souls, like safe place for the lost souls. kind of. I, I mean, I don't even know that it's even safe place. I think that that's a, a relatively, yeah, a relatively, it's it, not, even, it was sometimes dangerous. That's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, and that's part of the thing. People are like, oh, you missed the danger of it. And, you know, they're, they have those people and then people yelling at each other. Oh, you're this, you're that, you know, right. safe spaces or, you know, it should be a safe space. People are arguing about semantics and attaching rules to something that fundamentally everybody just got while we were, you were there. Maybe there was just nowhere else to go. Maybe you were just there with your friends and you were like, this is the music. For me, it was a combination. It was, this is the music that I was like, I hear this in my head. You know, I love all sorts. I love all sorts of other kinds of music. If I sit down to write music, it comes out either 
one of two ways, you know, it's like either it's fast and it soars or it sounds like falling down the stairs. That's, that's it. Like, that's what I got, you know, you know, like my, you know, it's funny because my, my, some of my recent efforts have been an attempt to learn how to do something that's neither of those, Yeah, you know, right. and, and cause I'm like, I got to try something here. <laughs> like, yeah, I can't, I can't be a two trick pony. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, it's so awesome that you can still push after all that time too. I mean, one thing, like, let's go back to those like early years. Cause you know, I always felt like, like your generation of like punks and hardcore kids were kind of this like forging generation. Like I felt I came into it and even though the road was perhaps like paved with gravel, it was paved. You know what I mean? Like we kind of knew what was going on and there was a little bit of like, uh, like you even said, like a playbook in, in some ways, you know, but I feel like when you all, you know, kind of started kicking into this and like, I want to talk about how you got into PD and what that was like in the early days. Like, do you, do you feel like you had to fight for that kind of space more back in the day than now? Like people are a little more accustomed to just alternative culture, like being on the surface? Absolutely. I mean, that in of itself, I mean, it's, there's no question that the idea of hardcore and the idea of the fact that there's a mainstream hardcore at all, (laughs) you know, like means that things have changed, you know, like this is a, you know, kid shows up with blue hair at your high school. They have blue hair. No one bats an eye, you know, it, that, was that's different but all more so than that it the music itself there was no touching point in in the culture when i first found this like i went straight from listening to like tom petty to listening to like aod (laughs) like and i'm like you know like and there are certainly connections in that like hey like you know, like I like AOD. AOD seems to like Black Sabbath just at a thousand miles an hour. You know, like right, right, um, right. And like we all had the same. I don't know quite how to put this. Um, we all came from the same generation at that point. There weren't that many generations before me. There yeah. were some, but like yeah. you know, like when I like when I found this stuff, like there was a crew of dudes who were a couple years older than me and were very heavily invested, but we were all talking the same musical language because all, it was all like, Hey, you know, this record is a fantastic rock record, you know? And this is a, you know, we, it wasn't like a, wasn't like now. Yeah. What were things like, so what were things like outside of punk and hardcore that were informing like punk and hardcore in those days? Like, like, was it metal? Was it, like I, stuff like that was feeding it? Um, no. I mean, yes, but no. I mean, there were metalheads. Like when we, when I was in, in PED, like we inherited Stu. Like Stu joined the band. He was from Edison. And uh, he was a metalhead. He, he introduced me to like Sodom. You know, he was super into Sodom. And he, you know, <laughs> and it was the first drum set. We practiced at his house for a while. It was the first drum set I had ever sat down behind that had a double bass oh, set up. He had a yeah, pedals. Yeah. Now, 
being left-handed, it didn't do me any goddamn good, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but, you Don't know, get me he, started on your fucking left-handed. <laughs> but he, you know, but what's, it, I guess, important to understand is that the idea, like the metal kids and the punk kids, like, you know, they all got together and smoked weed, but they were right. different groups of people, mm-hmm. you know, like they had their different things. And like, at that point, the extreme metal or whatever it was, you know, the more extreme versions of that, like it and like the punk stuff, it was punk and hardcore and then it was metal. And then at a certain point, not till way down the line, those bands that started to come together, like, you know, the term crossover actually was bands crossing over yeah. into metal and like combining those things and people right. being like, holy shit, this is new and weird. Yeah, like, this yeah. is crazy. You know, like, you know, like all those things, like it, the people were coming at it from a different way. Like it was two things growing up simultaneously. Um, and again, just crossing over and leaking into each other. But if you look at the, I guess the music of the time was so, 80s you know early right. 80s was not it was not a heavy rock time it was like a bubblegum like everything is shiny time yeah you know and there was not to say that there wasn't great music happening because there was there was sure. absolutely yeah. fantastic classic you know music that you know that's what you two started and actually was fantastic and was like edgy there was that thing and edgy like, i see know, what you did there for yeah, you too. You know, and <laughs> and like, you know, bands like Duran Duran and the New Wave stuff and all of that, the cure, and these are bands that were flourishing and doing something that was new and really creative. But it you know, and if nothing else, like some of those bands touched into like you could be like new wave and then edge into the punk stuff. Right. You know, and then you would find yourself falling into the punk stuff and the hardcore stuff, and like you were like, Oh, how do I get here? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? So how long did PED play for? This is post-ejaculation depression, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Um, longer, <laughs> longer than you think. Um, and I mean, I would have to, I'd have to sit down and figure it out. Um, but like, I mean, we did, they were, they were playing before me. Like, I wasn't the first drummer. That was, I think that was John Terrier and Matt Thomas. Um, and then I joined the band after and we did that first that first seven inch um and i was really bad <laughs> i was just, i was really bad how old uh, were you at that time uh i'm i was still in high school or i was either still in high school or just about to graduate from high school i think Island park high yeah i'd have to look at the i'd have to look and if i looked at the record i could tell you exactly where i was timeline yeah yeah um, go owls represent yeah exactly <laughs> but you know again like sam had already graduated he was in college um two of the guys were younger than me they were still in high school um but we played for i don't know uh, seven or eight years minimum wow. you know like we yeah. did we did I a did bunch not of things i know that yeah that was like yeah. uh just a touch before I was around. I did not know it lasted that long. Wow. Yeah. I'm trying to think. It it might have been up to the point at which I was had started doing separate piece um with Pete Horvath. And then right. we just we just we recorded a last demo of songs, a couple of which ended up on a shredder comp. 
um, with PED. And so I know that it was simultaneous because there's a there's a PED song on it and a separate piece song. Um, and then shortly after that, we just stopped playing. Sam started doing a record label. He put out like the Bouncing Souls record and the Loose record. And oh, did just, he do like the Greenball Crew record, like that one? No, that was a that was a twelve inch. He did there. He did a. He I'm pretty sure was it him that did that, or maybe it wasn't him that did the Bouncing Souls record. He did a I Loose like record, that. and he did Search and Annoy. I don't know. Maybe he didn't do he didn't do that. Yeah, I'm wrong. I'm I'm getting this is <laughs> a, right. I'm, I'm driving all the I talked to him re- like not that long ago. Yeah, yeah. And, and now I got all these other things dragging. I'll in here. cut it and make you look good. Don't worry. You don't yeah. have to. You don't have to cut nothing. I'm just me rambling about dumb stuff. Brad, Brad just took a note. Um, so around this time, you you got around, like a few things. Uh, wait, What's around that? around which time? Where are around we? Around like these these early years when you're like high school, getting into college. I remember, you know, I know like you know, having and living with diabetes has been like, you know, a pretty major part of your life. And I remember somewhere around this time, you told me a story about how almost you like found out you had it that badly, where you were like riding a bike and and you had like a serious, like, am I making this story up? Oh, no, no, you're not making it or up. Or you got like punched by an EMT guy or something? That was, that was... Yes, this, this is, is actually a real story, right? Can you can you No, this is a real story. I was a okay, but let's just to clarify for the sake of actual timeline here. Yeah. I became a I became a diabetic. I was about 14. So I had already been okay. I had already been living with it. Um, you know, like if you if you want to go back and you know, touch on that first question, if you want a reason to to, to fall into that thing, you know, this thing you know, at 14, um, I was told you're not going to be able to do all these things. You're going to take shots forever. Uh, uh, drinking yeah. drinking is out, which in the 80s was, you know, that was culture. Oh, yeah, right. You know, like, um, and you're fucked up. Oh, by the way, your hormones are going crazy. Here's another one to inject into your body. So uh, yeah. there was a there was a bit of anger and a bit of like angst going on in there. Sure. Um, sure. You know, I I had I had changed my friends group into guys I'm still friends with today, including, you know, most notably Pete Horvath, who I still could not say the more nice things about best dude ever. Um, but I found a home with those guys and those, you know, it was Pete who, you know, helped Pete and my friend Dave Rock who turned me on to this kind of music. Um, and I was like, this is fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I never put that together, especially with the drinking, that that was like the impetus for it. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not going to say it was the impetus, but it was definitely a part of it. A lot of, a lot of like unattached, like, I'm not the same as you guys. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> like, right. Um, but so I went, I graduated high school. Um, this was actually the, the end of my sophomore year of college. Um, I moved into an apartment on Hamilton Street in the Berkshire. Rutgers in New Brunswick. Right. Okay. And just for you, just for the sake of you, because you know where it is, into the Birchwood Terrace Apartments. <laughs> okay. Appreciate you know where I'm talking about. I do. Okay. I do. Yeah. All right. So, um, and I used to ride my bike to the dining hall because I was, you know, I was still a full-time student and I had a meal plan. Um, and at some point in the morning of one day, I was getting ready to ride my bike over there. I took my shot and... 
I got on my bike and that the like the next thing I remember I was I had woken up in the hospital and with a, with like a bruised face <laughs> it was thoroughly unpleasant oh and it was pieced together that somebody that I knew had seen me wandering on College Avenue I had gotten as far as the dining hall um I must have like hit something like hit like a something that caused the insulin to hit me really fast um took my shot and normally you know you have some time especially back then i wasn't taking the fastest acting i was taking one that was should have given me ample time to get there right um whatever it was it hit me like a ton of bricks and i blacked out while riding my bike there never found the bike um but he said they they called they found me wandering around outside the dining hall lost and like upright but not there wow and uh, they called somebody called the paramedics, and the paramedics showed up, and I resisted because I was out of my mind. Like I yeah. was not. There was no one home, and they held me down and they punched me in the face, and then they put me in an ambulance. Wow, um, a um, protocol and, of paramedics back in yes. the, back in those days, huh? And what the funny part is is that the funniest part addendum to that story is, and I I just was get I had got. I got together with Vin and Frank and those guys a couple. I get together with them pretty regularly, and we we play once in a while. Um, two years later, or a year later, I was living with Vin um, in the first Handy Handy Street house I lived in. Yeah, and it happened again, like uh, not as bad, but I was in the house just wandering around, and uh-huh. they called the paramedics. They called my mom, and she said to call the paramedics, and. Uh, they punched me in the face too. What the fuck? <laughs> no. I, so I I have woken up I have woken up twice in the hospital with a with a, like a busted up jaw. What the fuck? And uh, and once on the floor of the second Handy Street house, and that after that I was like things have to change. All right, so I, do not call New Brunswick paramedics right, if in like, distress. Jesus. So, I mean. Keep in mind, it was a long time ago. But I mean, uh, still, if you, the fact that that wasn't an isolated story is a little alarming. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, you know, it also it's got to be said in my defense, or not yeah. my defense, in their defense, I was probably pretty un- incoherent and not not cooperating. So you know, and there was like a there's a very you know easy treatment plan that I was clearly not cooperating with. Yeah, man. right. Sure, so, sure. so, you know, it, sometimes things have to be done. I didn't hold it against him. I was like, just like, damn, that sucked. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you brought up Handy Street. I'm glad you did. So 67 Handy Street, you know, there's, there's a, you know, ro- a romantic look by the younger people about what was going on in New Brunswick in those days, particularly you know, uh, your house and 67 Handy and also like eventually, you know, the Bouncing Souls house. I don't know if that was uh, previous or, or, or during the same exact time. But like, you know, how it's this one neighborhood in New Brunswick that seemingly was always the place that was like allowed to do this stuff. It was like a strange mix of, you know, weird college kids and punks and locals, you know, mostly locals, I guess, really. And like, like, how did we get going to Handy Street? What was the first, like, you know, uh, major, major show that, like, put you guys on the map where, you know, all of a sudden touring bands are coming through and, and stuff like that? Well, I mean, let me, th- 
I want to I want to go back at before just to address something that you said in there that I I think should be clarified or supported. You know, there is a, a, a certainly a growing mythology about the romanticism, you know, the romanticism of that era. Yeah. But unlike in many places or many times that I have seen, it was actually fully well deserved. Ah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I will actually tell you that as far there was abruptly there was a, a huge influx of of like a breakout a breakout of musical culture and yeah, all sorts right. of different things because if you go back and count in that neighborhood um there was handy street and around the corner of course was the bouncing souls they were doing their thing up the street from them was um was loose guys um mm-hmm. with with decalator and all those guys who were briefly fantastic um you know they they had their they were Clearly, and they were very close to getting signed, and then they fell apart. Up the street from us was a, a rock band whose name I can't remember, but it spawned that entire scene of like grunge, Transylvia. Um, there were a bunch of those bands happening, and it was a very good time for that as well. And then up the street from us, from them, same one street over was the Dead Guy House, right? Um, and yeah. then shortly thereafter, like fast forward, like. While we were still at Handy Street, across town there was the Endeavor guys. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, Ari and Dave moved into Handy Street, so the, like Lifetime was based out of there, That's and right. they were practicing there. But the whole thing actually started, and this is where I give him credit because credit was due. Um, we set up Handy Street when we moved in. It was, it was just, it was a two-floor house, but the second floor had not been finished. So we oh, were really? renting. Yeah, the second floor was for the first two years. Um, the guy who owned the house started doing renovations, <laughs> and then never finished them. Uh, such New like, Brunswick shit. For, right there. Like some yeah. super sketchy shit happened yeah. while we were there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there were just it was the five of us, and we it was me and Bill. And Jim and Paul and Biv from Super Touch. That was the first iteration. Right. And my whole thing was I wanted a place to practice. I wanted <laughs> right, a place. Right. I wanted a place for a band to practice. So we rehearsal got, studios, thin, thin, right. and gross, and yeah. in those days, yeah. So I wanted a place to set my shit up, to set our shit up, and practice, and be able to do that. That's actually been one of the defining, <laughs> right. defining goals of my life is to have a place to set my shit up, yeah. and be able to make noise. Do not so, show me a house without a basement, right? So yeah. we, you know, that's actually been all through my life, and I'm <laughs> fine with that. Um, I spent a lot of time in your basements. Yeah, I, I mean, this. and. And, you know, I've built two, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, um, we, uh, we set up our stuff and we practiced it for a while. That was during Headstrong and then the early versions of, of Ensign. But at some point in there, Mike O'Brien, OB, decided he wanted to do his show. And now at that point, the basement hadn't been cleared out. There was all this junk from the prior tenants. Oh, really? And um, at that point, we had already started to transition into some, a couple of new guys. Bill moved in um, and he had moved out of the Souls house and moved into our house. Um, and then we he did a, OB put on a show and it was Resurrection and Lifetime and I cannot remember for the life of me who the other band was or if it was just those two. But they, they did a show and uh, and I was like, 
hey, this totally worked. We should we should do more of these. And he was like, rah, 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 you know, and <laughs> um, so we cleared that we cleared the basement. So a lot at, of people showed up. They were, they were stoked. Like. Um, there were like 25 people there. Right. You know, for like, those days, pretty yeah. good. Yeah. But that, you know, we were like in that basement that was full of garbage. Like we were like, this is cool. Um, right. And we we cleared that basement. I, Bill and I knocked down a wall at one point. I put in an air conditioner. Um, <laughs> you know, like I got one from my mom and put it in the basement. Like, yeah, yeah. But like we we built a PA out of scraps and, you know, like we were like, okay, let's do this. Yeah. And we started, we started off just doing smaller shows. Um, and there was at that point, there was a space in there um, in time where there just weren't a lot of places doing shows. So bands who were looking for shows anywhere that they would look, they would, you know, they would call me or they would call someone in the house or we would know somebody or, the souls would know somebody or it would just, it was all word of mouth at that point. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and at some point in there, we turned into a stop, you know, right. and, a lo- and a lot of it was the same defining thing. Like if somebody called me, I would put on the show, I would put it together. Um, yeah. It seems and knows that you like, you didn't really say no to anyone or anything, right? At that point. No. Um, and I carried, I mean, in the years that I did shows, I carried that same attitude if you were willing to, if you were willing to pick up the phone and call me, and ask me for a show, I would find something to put you on. That's awesome. Uh, you know, um, and it it was never about like a genre matching. It was like, well, this is a local band. We'll put them on, or this is a band coming through. We'll give it our best shot. That's awesome. Um, and I've actually, in like years, years and years later, I actually had a conversation with somebody who was from. Uh, that more North Jersey based scene that was happening at that time. There were a lot of great bands up there and none of them ever called me. None of them all from the time at the Bellity, none of them ever called me. Hmm. And I was like, they were like, Oh, well, you know, you didn't want to put us on. I was like, literally no one called me ever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like I've known some of you guys for, for a long time. None of you ever picked up the phone and said, Hey, can we play there? Cause my answer would have definitely been Yes. So this is why I played so many of your shows because I just kept asking. Right, because you were like, hey, can we play that show? <laughs> yes. Oh yes, God, you can. Can, you, can we go on that one too? Yeah. yeah. You know, like, you know, and then it started being, you know, like down that line, um, a couple of bands early on that, you know, that we that we dealt with got a little bit bigger. Right. And then because Which they got a little bit those, bigger. Like- I mean, there's a ton, like, but like we did a channel show Um, as an example, I'm still, you know, I'm still friendly with Nate, but then at a certain point, like that transitioned into like, we started getting at the melody, I would get phone calls from Matt Pike, who was booking Converge and, you know, we did an early Converge show or not early, but you know, they were, had, were already a long established thing, but Carl hooked me up with that. And then Matt Pike would call me for any of the bands that he was dealing with, which is all the Deathwitch bands. And, you know, so we put on a lot of great shows and it was not. You know, it was either there were certain bands that I went after. I was like, I would, I want this band to be here, you know. And I know that you guys had had Popeye on, and he was one of them. I was like, I am going to find this dude, and we're going to make this happen. Yeah, yeah. He he told a great story actually on that. He also to the point that he remembered Ulysses by name. 
Oh yeah. Which was really impressive and cool. That I was like, um, because Ulysses, just shout out right now, one of the finest dogs yeah. to ever walk this earth. <laughs> I, I got but, a picture of him right here, here just hanging out. Love it. But he, <laughs> he told this funny story about like when they had that show at like Middlesex County College that kind of went bad and they had to play short. And like all of a sudden you were like side stage just being like, no, come on. Come to my yeah. house. Oh, no. Nah, come on. Like, no, you're like almost like they didn't have a choice. Like. Just tell everyone you're coming to Handy Street. Right. I'll handle the rest. Come on, you know. And, I mean, and that's exactly how it happened. There has never been a moment in my life where I was more like, "Oh, we're making this one happen," because <laughs> I came out. I went out there to see them, right? And then when I got, I was like, "Oh no!" Like, you know, we're not. We can't do that. Like, yeah, right. you know, I was like, "This is my." I was like, "This is my chance," you mm-hmm. know, and like, you know, like. That what they were a band, you know, that resonated with me as people, and also as as musicians and as people who put out great music. Um, to the point where, like, I think that they're all still fucking awesome, awesome oh, human yeah. beings. Um, but like, um, yeah, there was like no way I was gonna let that one go and be out, go by and be like, uh, yeah, no. So um, you got so it's like, come on, far side, you're coming to play at my house. Yeah. Oh no. And I, I like the funny part was this is way pre cell phone. Yeah. Like, this is right. This yeah. is pre cell phone. So I am finding a payphone and I am calling like Jim Cook at my house, who's like in his in his boxers, like hanging out. And I'm like, I'm like, you got about half an hour, and a bunch of fucking people <laughs> yeah, are going right. to start showing up. We're doing a far side show, and he was like, "Holy shit!" I was like, "Yeah, we're doing it." Like, and you know, and we did it. When I came to New Brunswick, there was sort of this this relic time of like the melody and the Roxy and kind of this like late 80s time when like New Brunswick was like Athens, Georgia and was like cool for a little while and had artists and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. And and then and then the melody, you know, by the time I started going to it, you know, it was you, it was John Kohler, it was like it was like this crew I knew over here who was doing a completely separate thing. So like, like where did A to B happen? And, and, and how did the melody become again, like just like Handy Street, like a, a national destination? Like why? Uh, that's actually, a, that's actually a, a very good question. Um, and it's, it's less, um, it's less of a sudden thing than you would imagine. Um, while we were doing, while we were doing shows, because we were at Handy Street for four years and did shows there for almost almost the entire time, um, more probably three of those four years, we did a ton of shows. Um, at the end of the fourth year, um, I was at that point, I moved out of Handy Street, um, did a summer tour with Ensign, came back, was no longer in Ensign. You had that epic that. last show, I should know, right. at Handy Street yeah. with uh, Sick of It All. Yeah, that we had Sick of It All, and I, I have the flyer around somewhere. There's a ton of bands on that. It was Lifetime and The Bouncing Souls and Endeavor and mm-hmm. a whole bunch of bands um, and an ice cream truck. That, yeah, I'm, that, I'm still one of the most terrifying things in my life. You were very cool that day, and you escorted me behind an amplifier to watch <laughs> Sick of It All. Not realizing, like, for me, I'm, like, fucking 16, 
And all of a sudden, like 300 people or something squeeze into a basement made for like 40. Oh, yeah. Well, and my claustrophobic ass realizes I'm in the corner. Oh, yeah. I'm well, the last one out of this basement. I <laughs> hope Sick of It All doesn't like injustice system doesn't yeah. fucking tear this house down. That was terrifying. Yeah. yeah. For the for the record, for the accurate, accurate record, we ended up taking in $1,200 at $3 a head that night. Or that oh day, God. so we had probably had Whoa. upwards of four hundred people. Um, <laughs> Not safe, and, and, you know. Which, un- unsurprisingly, it did. It was the only show we ever did that got shut down. <laughs> really? <laughs> it was literally the only show we ever did that the cops showed up and shut us down. That was it. That's <laughs> and look, crazy. I mean, and when they got there. There was an ice cream truck on our neighbor's lawn. And like, you know, there were like 75 kids in the street, like right. setting off fireworks. And we were like, I, I went out and I was like, you got me. It was my yeah. ex, my ex-girlfriend's um, roommate was a, <laughs> came and I was like, he was a cop. Oh, yeah. and, and a New Brunswick cop. And, he, and I saw him and I was like, oh God, this is going to be so bad. <laughs> and he was actually very pleasant to me. He was like, you just got to make these people go away. Like yeah. we didn't even get fined for it. I mean, it was Damn. it was great. It's just like make this not yeah, happen. Just anymore. make it go away. And I was yeah, like, yeah. "Yep, we can do that." That's um, hilarious. All right. So you were just saying you just left Ensign, and we were moving into like okay. so like getting the melody bar. But yeah. to do that, to understand the melody thing, and also in part the Roxy thing, you have to understand like in that period of time when we were all living at Handy Street, Bill got a job working at the Roxy. Okay. Uh, and Bill was working at the this Roxy. This is Bill Schultz. This is Bill Schultz. Yeah, we haven't said his last name. Yet. Right. Who? We have to be careful. We've known each other a long time. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and he, uh, you know, he was a, a go-getter. And he's an absolutely fantastic. And you know him. He's an absolutely, he's Bill. Um, um But he, uh, he got, I ended up getting, he got me a job at the Roxy. Oh, and, okay. um Following that, like the Bouncing Souls and a bunch of people, I didn't put those shows on. People did shows at the Roxy. Matt O'Brien worked at the Roxy. Um, like a bunch of people. I think Maddie might have been the one who put those shows on. Um, I didn't have anything to do with those. Okay. But at a certain point, um, most of us transitioned from working at the Roxy to working at the Melody. Bill went across the street. He had a job at both, and then he was working at the Melody. And then I went over and started working at the Melody too. And so we were already, all of the people who were involved with that Melody stuff, they were already in place. Mm. Um, so when I stopped doing shows there, we talked to the people who were there and we made arrangements. And like, I can't remember if Kohler had just become the manager and that was why, I don't remember the exact thing, like what led us into the first set of all ages shows. But Kohler certainly wasn't, you know, he was a giant chunk of that um, yeah. in, in getting John us Kohler. in. Yeah, John and Kohler. Was, and was this like, because, you know, I think the all ages shows thing is like a big part of this because, I mean, at the time, if it wasn't a basement show or if it wasn't, you know, an Elks Lodge or Middlesex County College or something, I mean, getting into a real venue a bar or a club at that time, all ages was also hard. And there was not a lot of stuff like that in New Jersey. No, I mean, it was, it was the era 
when a lot of those clubs, except for the biggest ones, started to close down, like in mass. You know, because previous to that, New Jersey had a huge heavy metal scene. And periodically, like a lot of them would do punk shows or hardcore shows, just, you know, for shits and giggles. Um, until they, you know, whoever it was wore out their welcome. Um, but one of the understandings should be at that time is that like the generation before that, we did, I mean, like Decalator and Sam, they did shows in VFW halls everywhere. They did house shows. Decalator, the, one of the very first shows I ever went to, one of the very first, was actually at Decalator's house on a street that is no longer there. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> wow. Like, like yeah. it's over by over by where the uh, one of those new Robert Wood Johnson buildings is, and they oh, right. re- they redid the roads. Now the house may be there, it may not be. I don't. Even, I'm not sure. But the roads have all changed, so it's kind of hard to figure out. Um, so like the idea of house shows, it long predated us. You know, like that was a generation yeah, before me. But you know. If for nothing else, we took it and made it into like a full-on game plan. Like we're gonna do this shit all the time, and you know we're gonna do our best to make them encouraging and active. And like we're gonna f- put up flyers and we're gonna make it like a real effort into keeping it something that was positive and consistent. Because right. I, you know, it's one of those things that, and I know that you know this too. Like one of the elements that make those shows and made the Madville shows succeed was consistency like you kept booking shows so you always had something yeah at one show to promote for the next show so we had you know we had it's funny i have it around somewhere not anywhere visible but we would we put out like those back and back and front flyers and then a back and front zines and we did like three or four of them and they were ridiculous yeah 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 i kind of remember this you know we had stickers that we did at Kinko's, like for free. Uh, I of admit, no, I admit nothing. Um, oh, that was the trick to New Brunswick. Everyone uh, had to know someone who yeah. had access to a Kinko's card. That was, <laughs> I and I thought you guys were ridiculous because I was going to the uh, Office Max at the Somerville Circle where they had the honor system. I was like, I don't know why you guys are fucking around with these cards all the time at Kinko's. <laughs> <laughs> Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
So this is the time too where like the scene was changing, right? Like by this point, you know, bands are using booking agents, like 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 things are getting a little bigger, right? Like how did and the melody became just like the place to go in New Jersey. Like was that all your um, you know, I know a lot of that was like your hookups and 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 your promotion at that time. Like 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 what was happening then? Yeah. I think what it was was I mean, they already had like a club scene built into that. So they had all the stuff and they had the mechanism to to promote it. And when we started doing all ages shows, John was always gracious enough to like promote those shows. That was one thing. Right. Um so when we were doing the all ages shows, it was like a hey, we have a real venue now. Um and a lot of that credit goes to the people that, uh, you know, at that point, it was end of Ensign and then also the beginning of, then the beginning of Nora. But like, like Carl put me in touch with people and he oh, had Samuelson. connections. Yeah, Carl and then, and Mike and a whole, you know, it was, they were calling me, and they were booking me, but these are people that like I became friendly with um, yeah, through other right. people, you know, and then having established that, or it was people I was already friends with from doing shows at the Melody. So we would bring those bands in and bring in local bands and people would then call. They'd be like, hey, this person said that you could get us a show. And we can just continue to do that. And then there were a couple of booking agents like Matt Pike, who was a great dude and still is a great dude, um, who would just call. They'd be like, I have this band on tour. And I would just be like, yes, like, you know, we'll pay them whatever. And then once it becomes a, a mark of like a consistent place, it gets onto other people's radar. And I think that right. that's just the way that it works. It's like we were consistent enough and never fucked anybody over and always took care of people and tried to make it as much fun as we could make it and be inviting and be friendly. Yeah, yeah, and for I, sure. And I think because of that, you know, and you did the same thing because of that, it became, I didn't, after a while, I didn't have to pursue bands unless it was somebody I really wanted. Right. People just called and, you know, whatever, the, whoever called, that's who I was going to do, you know? And we always made an effort to always, always, always get bands from the local scene and be, so if it was, it's three bands or four bands, two of the bands are going to be local. That's, that's there right. was no, yeah, there was never, right. you know, we had arguments about, about that with a couple people over the years. And it was always like, there's going to be a lo at least one or two local bands on this show. Yeah. You know, yeah, um, yeah. I and that was the days where these, these, you know, package tours were, were literally one band or two bands when it's right. still, you know, you had the ability to put on opening bands. Right. And now, you know, like the, I think that the one exception was they had that rev tour and it was four bands. Oh, right. And yeah. like, uh -huh. and they were like, they were like, yeah, you know, we don't, we don't want to, we only want these four bands. And I was like, all right, man, that's fine. And uh, only because like, it's a one-time thing. Sure. sure. Yeah. You know, right. but like, again, like, you know, like we had already started, I'm, I can't remember what kind of layover there was because we did start doing shows at the Melody while there were some shows at the Melody that were still happening while we were in Handy Street. But yeah. like, you know, I had a, I had that's a, right a great in that like I had a great conversation with Lifetime's booking agent when we booked their last show at the Melody mm -hmm. um um their booking agent who was Margie called me and 
she was pretty, you know, she was, she's tough, you know, and I, and I didn't have a lot of experience dealing with booking agents. Mm -hmm. I just would talk to whoever it was. And, you know, she was pressing me about money and I was like, Margie, they're going to get all the money. They can do with it whatever the heck they want. Like we have to pay, we have to pay the bar X percent. That's what the deal is. That's what we're going to do. And she was like, yeah, but we want this guarantee. And I was like, Ari's standing next to me in his like in his like yeah. a, like a t shirt and his underwear, just is, laughing at me. And I'm like, my roommate. Yeah, I'm like, you're not you're not seeing the picture here. They practice here. He this dude's standing here just like, it's like laughing at me. And I'm like, okay. You so know. Margie's reaming you out in one in one side, pressing right. you for money, and Ari's on the other side in his underwear, just laughing. Yeah, you know, it's that because is awesome. But you know, that was the thing. Like part of the thing that that. <laughs> made it uncomfortable for me because I didn't, they were people that I, I wanted to deal with people. I didn't want to deal with booking agents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh-huh. there were the next generation, which was like Ricky and Heath and there were all those battles of people that, yes. you know, fighting over getting shows and fighting over spaces and just nasty shit like yeah. that went on. I want to know part of that. And, you know, like, yeah. at during when, those years. When art meets commerce, right? Yeah. It was like the full on example of that at that time. Yeah, you know, like when Clay was doing shows at Somerset, you know, yeah. Clay, Clay and I worked together. Clay sure. was yeah. was a Clay was a huge part of, you know, running shows at the Melody, and he was a huge part of setting shows up. He brought in an entirely different element of right. bands that I was dealing with, yeah. and that opened our field too. Like we, like I'd be like, we'll do anyone, you know, and like John brought in a couple of bands that again were more from the bands that he loved. You know, and so he was like reaching out and he was doing like he did that Jimmy World show. Yeah, I think I even booked a couple shows at the Melody. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I would I I would bet that to be entirely accurate. Yeah. You know, like it was like a we're here, you know, like let's use the space and do a good have a good time. And like all those guys when they were in that weird competition, I was like, you guys can hand out flyers for the shows. Just don't hand out flyers for the shows on days that here are here's our flyer of events. Just don't hand out flyers for shows days that we have shows. Like maybe we could work yeah, together. Yeah. Like yeah, just yeah. don't book that show and then come down here and and hand it out here. Anything other than yeah, that. And I won't make you tell that story about Heath Heath charging you for uh, walking up every step, charging you per step. We're, we won't have to tell that story. <laughs> um, so I have. Like, like my three highlight, I have so many memories from Melody. I have tons, mostly about me playing a show there and you fuckers kicking me out because I wasn't old enough to drink yet. Um, <laughs> so I'd play the all ages show during the day and then I'd beg you guys. I'm like, can I just stay for a fucking drink? I just played. They're like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you look like you're 16 and you're actually 17. So no, you can't. But I'd say my highlight memories are... At Lifetime's last show, there was, I showed up and there's just like a line, you know, like four and a half blocks down the melody and I run into you and it's like the first time in my life I got to use like the I know a guy thing. (laughs) And you took me right to the front and brought me in and I was like, thank goodness, because I did not want to miss this show. The other one is you and I chilling at the downstairs bar when the Bouncing Souls were playing upstairs and me looking up and going, this is fucking terrifying because the floor was bowing. Oh, the ceiling. Yeah. To maybe like a 10% degree, like the concave. Oh yeah. 
So, uh, so the Bastic Souls are playing upstairs. People are jumping, and we are literally watching the fucking ceiling move like a trampoline. Uh, I, you know, it, and it used to happen, not all the time, but it. whenever the shows were, like, real packed, it would get like that. There was a, you know, we were never that worried about it, although probably we should have been. <laughs> and it was like, it'll be fine. <laughs> what could happen? There's a, there's a big steel beam there. Nothing could go wrong, uh, you know? Oh my god! It almost turned into Quiet Riot, and then uh, so, and then another one is the first time I saw at the drive-in, and I'm pretty sure anybody who saw at the drive-in was at the Melody Bar. There must have been like fucking fifty people there, and we that- all watched them just fucking destroy the place. Like no one had seen a band perform like that yet at that time. It was like some next level shit. See, I'm gonna. Uh, this is where I'm gonna cut in. And, and more than fifty? Was no, that... it was less than fifty. Less it was probably, than fifty. Yeah. It was less than fifty. And so, like, I know like, me and Little Mike were two of them. Yeah, uh, there might have been, but there was between thirty and fifty. Yeah, right. But I, what I was gonna cut in and say is this: what I remember about the at the drive-in show is going. I really don't like this band, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and like you know, Kohler. That was a show that Kohler booked. And he loved them. He loved yeah. them early on. Yeah. He loved them from day one. And I was like, I watched them and I was like, yeah, I'm not feeling this. That singer's really, me. that singer's not really annoying. I was like, the drummer's great, but this band is, that singer's really annoying. Uh, now, remind not, me not to hire you as A&R, huh? Yeah, no <laughs> shit, no shit talking. Like, it was one of those, like, I recognize that there's a thing here. This is one in that separation. I was like, I recognize that this band is good, but yeah, I don't yeah, like, yeah. but I don't like it. Um, this is not for me. Um, and I was like, okay, you know, like it, that was, it was a, you know, thing like, listen, I sat downstairs. It, it made no difference to me. I sat downstairs during Jimmy Eat world. They did that clarity show place was sold out. And John did that show upstairs with, for clarity. And it was, again, the ceiling was fucking bound. And I was like, this band's really boring. <laughs> like, I just don't like them. Um, but I also just didn't like at that point. That was not a style of music. Yeah, that's just not that, too realistic. That, too. that grabbed me. Um, yeah. You know, I was fully invested in like, in like, the other two, the soaring and the stairs. That's you know, right. like, um, there was not a lot of room in for like midwestern emo. I just never grabbed me. Um, I mean, years later, when they sort of transitioned out of that very slow sound into their next record, I was like, I get this. This is very energetic and also very mellow in spots. I like this. The other one, I, I was like, this is too long and it's boring me. It makes me want to go to sleep. Um, <laughs> so what, those were my high, like what, what's one or two like highlight moments for you that are like standout flashbulb moments from the melody for you? There's, it's a weird question. So I'm going to, it's a good question, not a bad question, um, but I'm going to redirect it. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, I'm going to change the question. Okay. And instead, I will give you a highlight of some of the disastrous moments. Oh, even better. Uh, uh, because in reality, like, A, there's two things that are that are factors there. One, I have a memory like a sieve. We did a shit ton of shows. Yeah. And yeah. quite frankly, almost all of them were a highlight for me. I There was always a band that I loved because, and you know, I also know that you relate to this. A lot of that thing, especially there, I was like, I could do whatever I want. 
these bands will come to me. You know, <laughs> right, like, right, yeah. you know, like, like, so like, you know, we did, we did that, the first Bane show in New Jersey ever. And there were 30 or 40 people there and I'm standing there with Carl and I was like, this band is fucking fantastic. And he was like, yeah, I think they already signed to Equal Vision. <laughs> and I was like, shit. Um, but like, notable disasters, um, things like the Converge show, which was a great show. Were you there for that one where Nate got hurt? No. He hit himself in the the first one. place was packed, and he, you know, it started playing, and they were in that in that full on like they were in the full on raging era. Yeah, he hit himself right. in the face with the headstock of his bass, uh, or a piece of his bass, and split his face open. It was nice. I think it was over one of his eyebrows. Well, at least he was close to Robert Wood, and, huh? And he ended up, they ended up playing like three or four songs, and then he had to go to the hospital because there was blood everywhere. And for context, for somebody who doesn't know the melody, I mean, the hospital is across the street. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, so that's good. And, and he came back to that. You know, he stayed. They stayed with us that night, and he came back, and he was his head was like he he was swole up. Yeah. Um, so there's that's a highlight disaster memory. The big disaster memory, one of the big disaster memories was, um, let's see, we had the Hot Water Music Show, and right. uh, and we were we opened the bar and we were all set up and people were lined up outside, mm -hmm. and Pat Cahalan, remember Pat Cahalan? Mm -hmm. um, he's like, I smell something funny over here, and I was like, Yeah, you're crazy, and he's like, No, I smell smoke. He's like, and we were like, Huh. And then other people were like, "Hey, we smell smoke too." And then there was a fire. Oh, one yeah. of the elect, one of the the signs there caught fire, and they came and they ripped the part of the front of the building off. Yeah. Um, so I somewhere yeah. in this basement, I was I have, outside for that one. Yeah, there's video. I have a video clip about thirty seconds long of like me despondently walking around with my video camera <laughs> with fire trucks and just smoke, and they're ripping the front of the melody oh. off, and I'm like, I'm like. Well, shit. But then Clay took that show and they moved it across the Somerset Street and it was an yeah. epic success. So there's two things you have to clear up for me. Again, you know, I, I the older I get, the less I believe in my own memory, you know? Um, okay. And I believe that sometimes you have highlight moments and the older you get, sensibility just fills in the blanks, but I don't know if the details do. Do you remember calling my mom to try to get her to let me go on tour with Ensign? <laughs> um, I do remember having a conversation, yes. So you did do, speak to my mom? I'm pretty sure and that I remember doing that, yes. <laughs> now, also, I don't know if it's just come up enough times that, yeah. you know, or if we just talked about it, but I'm pretty sure I tried to talk to your mom about this and it didn't go well. Yeah, no, it definitely didn't go well. Because I remember thinking at the time, because you, you to me were like the most respectable guy I knew. You know what I mean? You're already like working in schools and like stuff like this. So like, I'm like, oh, Chris, like, he's got like a house and like a job. Like he, you know, he's like an adult, like her. <laughs> so they'll just have a conversation and, and I'll be good, you know? Like, and then I remember it being pretty short. 
Because I was home. Yeah. I didn't hear what you were saying. I only heard on the other side. In context, this was probably what? The summer of 96? It would have to be, yeah. Something in there. Right? When Ensign was going to the West Coast. So in fairness to my mom, I was 15. (laughs) So I was asking to go on tour in a van with a bunch of men in their, (laughs) what, early to mid-20s at the time. Yeah, I mean... To go to California Not happening. to play hardcore shows. Like now that even in hindsight, I'm like, kind of good job, mom. You know? yeah. And like, to, just for reference, at the, although, you know, clearly I did have a house and became a teacher. That was later. I wasn't even at that point yet. Yeah. Like that was like two or three years before I became a teacher. Well, or, you were still you the know, most respectable adult I knew. I don't know what that says. I, I, and then I was I was the oldest person you knew, <laughs> yeah, except for the guy from <laughs> the only one who could rent a car that I knew. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it didn't actually it didn't go well though. We'll just say that. No, no. I I remember being brief. Yeah. All right. So the next story, which which I will lead me into my my next question, is: Do you remember the time you were having a party? Of some sort, and I accidentally called nine one one to your party. Oh yeah, it was a New Year's Eve party. That <laughs> was a New Year's. Called, it was a New Year's Eve party, oh, and you I'm called so the cops. Dumb. <laughs> I'm so dumb. I called the cops and, by accident to your party. Yeah, and Ow. they came, and it was a fucking disaster. <laughs> oh my god. I, the only thing I remember about it, I don't know what kind of state I was in. If it was a New Year's party and those days shit um but i remember trying to use your phone you had like a cordless phone in the kitchen and i attempted to use it to call someone and i think in my attempt to turn it on i pressed like a preset call 911 button and then i they answer <laughs> And they're like, oh, nine. I'm like, oh, God, no, 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 no. I'm like, Can you <laughs> pretend I didn't call. They're like, That's not how this works. <laughs> and I remember very sheepishly kind of coming up to you being like, uh, I don't know. I think that like nine, I, I don't know who's about to come here. What happened? Because I think I was like hiding in a corner after that. I don't think I watched you address the police. I'm actually pretty sure that you were trying to call somebody and tried to call 411 because, you know, we're back in the era of landlines and you called <laughs> information for, yeah. for, the, for the number of Domino's Pizza or whatever. Right, right, right. And called 911 instead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I think that that was probably the most likely thing that happened. What I remember is you telling me and then they showed up, they were very polite and sent them on their way, but it was like, I had a house full of idiots. Um, (laughs) And I was like, everybody's got to shut up. (laughs) Like, you know. Yeah, okay. So that did happen. But this was the house. This was Carsey Street in Highland Park. Yeah. Which wound up, like, in the same spirit as your shows and your music. This kind of became a a weird, uh, you know, place of worship for us younger punks who had nowhere to go and you ended up like it was like an island of misfit toys you took people in uh who had nowhere to go people who lived there you had a 
a very strange cast of characters that came in and out, even to the point of the band Poison the Well uh, naming a song on, on Tear from the Red after your house. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, like, t- tell me about, A, the spirit of this house, and B, like, how it came to pass that Poison the Well named a song after it. Well, again, I mean, that that was a thing um, that it, it's, again, it's less of a, of a game. It was less of a plan and more of like, it was a transition. I moved into that house after living with Dan Cav um, and Carl and Mike and all those guys on that house on Raritan Avenue. Right. Um, right, right. I bought, I bought that house and I moved in with uh, Chris Worrell mm-hmm. and then, so, you know, we were there and shortly thereafter, Rick, um, who was at that time, um, was had befriended us, started st- sort of moved himself in. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But but we were still doing regular melody shows then, and right. we were for the first the first bunch of years that I was there, we were still doing melody shows. So whenever a band needed a place to stay after the show, if they were on That's tour, right. it was like just just come back and sleep in the living room. So there was a and especially with bands that were like that became, that were like regularly on tour, it, the door was always open and that yeah, was made right. very clear. Like people, as pe- as long as guys were cool, it was like a, as long as you guys were cool, we're cool with you. Just, just call me and tell me you're coming or just show up. Like none of us have shit going on. Like, I guess all I got to do is go to work, but you can, you know, yeah, and right. as a result, like, like, we had Poison the Well had signed just signed to, with Josh, and they had started touring, and they they had a home in New Jersey. They this were was like signing playing, with Josh Grabell, Trust Kill Records, right, yeah. right. But they were playing they were playing in the Northeast all the time, right. and so we were we were a destination. They would play New York. They would come and stay with us. They'd play Philly. They'd come back and stay with us. Then they would you know then they would go on their way. So, um, it and then Rick ended up working with them, and he went on off on tour with them for a, a long right. time, and you know it's. That's history, a history all of its own. That's his story to tell. Yeah. But uh, um, like there were a whole bunch of bands in that era that were just, they were like essentially like, I'm giving you the keys to my house. If you need to stay here, yeah, you're always welcome because you guys are have a, there, no one was ever anything but cool. We very rarely had any issues in that regard. It was just people who needed a place to stay. So as far as that band aspect, but the other thing of it was, we were centrally located and nor at that time nor practiced there. So those right. dudes who were all in the area, we would get together for practice. Um, those dudes would hang out and then other dudes who lived in the area would just come hang out. So there was constantly like an influx of people going in and out and like hanging out and, you know, Chris had friends and, yeah, you know, yeah. then Rick had friends and they like all those guys were just, it was like a lot of moving parts in and out of the house all the time, which made it a lot of fun. You know, sure. like it was a, you know, like I could always go upstairs and be like, I'm closing my door now, you know, yeah, right, but also, right. yeah, if, you did. There was like kind of a, a Graceland sort of thing at that house right. a little bit where like the upstairs was for a very exclusive or just totally shut off. It was right. like, it was like, yeah, no one needs to go upstairs unless you need to go to the bathroom. That's right. The rest, you know, that that was... I, I remember at the parties, I had a unique invitation to Chris Worrell's room. 
Like if I yes. needed to get away, he was like, you can come here. But that wasn't, I know that wasn't for everyone. I felt very special at that time. Um, yeah. And I remember, you know, I'd live a block away and, uh, you know, quite a different house with quite a different scene, let's say. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> what did you call but, it? You know, the facial scar crew at my yeah. house? <laughs> but you guys, but you know what? The vibe at your house was, you know, like for all that, you know, like the thought about Handy Street. The vibe at your house, it was the same thing with just different people. Right. It's you know, true. If I, if I walked to Quick Check and then knocked on your door, I was going to open the door. There's going to be 20 people there. Yes. Like, do it some shit. <laughs> some of it was shady. Some of it wasn't. You know, like, but whatever was like, you know, like, it was something. And you know, people like, were welcome there. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was I'll just it was an era where it was like, there was a lot of us. Yeah. And like, you know. Well, so. I was just joking with Rick how I would have the parties at my house and, you know, out of nowhere, just like Spleet or like Kyle White and you always consistently with a shoulder bag, a small coffee and a Marlboro Ultralight would come into <laughs> the basement. And it was like this great, just to me, like this great molding of people. I loved when these things all came together and we could all party together. It was the best. Yeah, fair it, enough. It was great. And and just shout out to White Rose. Um, but yeah, that was a, um, a a great house. And like, I'd say like a, um, I don't know. It, it's, it's, I guess, a safe, a safe spot for like all of us, you know, where it just, uh, I don't know. It's a great, great place. I'm, I'm, it was. I'm sorry, I got off, off track it, there. I'm no, feeling a it, little sentimental. Oh. Again. You know, like I, I put this into perspective. It was a great house and it was great people. But also it just it's the house that everybody remembers. But like in that neighborhood, Portland lived down the street for a while mm -hmm. and you guys lived around the corner and Kyle and Spleet lived in that weird basement apartment yeah. a couple blocks away. Yeah, yeah. That one that was like the five foot ceilings. Yeah, that was a strange. Spleet would come over with like he would come over with like bumps on his head because he was too tall and he would <laughs> run into the door frame. <laughs> You know, like, yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, and before that, Split lived, um, Split lived across town. But, like, again, everyone kind of moved. And I think this happens gener generationally from New Brunswick to Highland Park. People are like, okay, I got to get out of New Brunswick. I'll just move to Highland Park. Yeah. And everybody, everybody shifted in that direction for a while. Highland Park's like the grown up move. It's like when you're, yeah. It's like when you're sick of the straight up college New Brunswick bar scene, you grow up and, and go to Highland Park where you have a, you know, quick check and then a couple trees, you know? Right. Yeah, you it's know, a different up there. Um, so one thing you got to illuminate me about because, you know, I honestly, I don't know why, but my memory of, I know we're, we're, we're flashing ahead a little bit, but my memory of the Gaslight Anthem going to your house and recording the demos. Yeah. For some reason, I just, I, maybe it was because it was so normal to me because it was like, I'm just going to Ross's house to do something, you know, which happened a lot. And it was like, you know, and then at the time, it's not like Gaslight was that big of a deal or anything. So we just kind of did the thing. But do you remember like, how it came to pass that we were like going to do demos there and, and what the kind of nature of the sessions was like in your, in your estimation. Yeah. You, you, I mean, it's not, 
overly complicated. You called me and were like, hey, hey, we need, we're going out west and we need to record these songs. Is this songs. your impersonation of me, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just a, just a general phone call impersonation. Okay. But it was okay. a, it, it literally was, at that point I was living, we had moved, you know, fasting forwarding. We had, I had moved out of Carter Street. We moved to East Brunswick. Um, then all that stuff happened that we're not talking about. And then I moved back from East Brunswick to, we rented a house for a, either a year or two years right. in Highland Park. North Highland and, Park up there, yeah. Uh, well, it was on the corner of South 7th and whatever street that is, I don't remember. But as, you know, and it was myself and Jenna and at the time it was Josh and, the, and Jinx. Oh, and uh, <laughs> and and Rick, who was in the basement, mm-hmm. and there was another room in the basement, and I turned it into a studio room, and I built myself a little recording desk outside there, because um, I had built a studio into the East Brunswick house, and that was where I started learning how to do digital recording. Yeah, right. Um, and which was cool. It was a it was a you know my first venture into digital stuff. Um, I had done analog stuff at Carsey Street, and I actually, I have, oddly enough, I have a cassette and also all these MP3s um, of an entire Killing Gift record. Oh, really? That you, yeah, that you recorded there. Um, and I don't think it, I don't know if it has any vocals in it or not. Oh, I wow. think that, I think that you recorded it to give to Renee oh. to, to put vocals over it. So it's like eight or nine songs. Wow. At least, like it's a bunch and I have it somewhere. Holy shit. Um, and they're cool. But that was all, it was on cassette and I had this ornate weird thing. I still have it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, this ornate like 20 track cassette, like literal cassette recorder. It was like that. <laughs> and I mean, the thing was incredibly hard to use and annoying, but it was cool. Um, but I, I, you called me and you were like, I want to record this thing. And I was like, just come over and we'll do it. And we set the room up and I think we did it in... It had to be done in two days. Yeah, because you were because you were leaving. So we did one day. We did the music, and whatever he was doing, singing, and then the next day he came back and finished. And we did like we did like a, some effects, like chains, because he wanted to do chains. That's right. And yeah. and I like maybe it was a little longer than two days. It was a couple of days, and then I mix it. I was funny because I was mixing it, and I was also starting on an online grad program that I had to get through to get my license, um, my, my full-on certification to be a, a school librarian. Oh, really? Yeah, because I had had an issue with my with certificate. So and you I were doing that at the same time you were mixing yeah. 59 cents? <laughs> so I, I'm like mixing it and then pausing to like answer these questions on this <laughs> online grad course. And I'm like, ah, oh, this sucks. <laughs> um, the cons, but, that's like the, the microcosm of your life right there. Yeah. It's like I, what I actually want to do and what I got to do. <laughs> yeah, but what I will, t- what I do remember, there's two things that I will tell you from the story, and let's see if you remember them. One is that thinking like that Brian was very talented, and he and I had a, a bunch of conversations about what he was writing and the words and like the music, and that you guys were very at the time you had you had been playing and touring. You guys were very tight, and it was live. Yeah. And then we fixed, and then we fixed a lot of some of the tracks. I'm not naming any names. Um, we fixed a bunch of tracks and <laughs> did what we needed to do. Right. Uh, yes. But um, the other thing is you were leaving and you were going and you were like, can I borrow a cymbal stand from you? <laughs> and I, I got it back like two years later. 
I was like, I know you don't need the symbol stand anymore, motherfucker. You're in a big band. <laughs> We're like, yo, they still ain't giving me hardware endorsements, man. Come on. Uh, so I had to borrow a symbol stand to go on tour after I let you record my music. Yeah, you were like, I need a symbol stand. I was like, just take it. Why did you cool. put up with us? You're just too much. Um, because I loved you, man. But like when you were... When you're digging into that and stuff, because, you know, I remember at the time, like, kind of the general feeling of, like, I, I felt like I was in a lot of, like, good bands for a long time, but every single band I had had, had some kind of obvious problem, you know what I mean? And I felt like a lot of times when I would play Gaslight early on for people, people would go, like, almost like, all right, here we go, Benny's got another band. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, like, this one's better like did you have any kind of feeling when you were like mixing it down like that like what we were working on would end up being something that was like i don't know i guess kind of important um yeah i mean not like in some kind of like nostradamus kind of way yeah but yeah. in a way like these songs are really fucking good and they're really catchy and if they're handled properly by somebody, and you know, at that time you were signing with, because Sink or Swim had already come out. You guys had already gotten a buzz. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. were already you were already doing better, and then that record came out, and you went from like point A to point B. Yeah. Like in terms of being a larger band, very quickly, you know. But like, it was like one of these like, as long as they don't fuck this up, right? This is gonna this will be this is going to be big because this is catchy and it's, it's radio friendly and it's deep, but it, and you know, and he's got a thing and they've, and they're tight. So yeah, like, you know, like I could say this has the potential to be very big. Uh, it's funny you, you know? say that. Cause like, you know, I think of, again, I'm not going to name names cause I don't want people to feel bad, but we had had experience, hadn't we with like a couple bands and people we knew who were super talented right on the precipice of being able to do something important with their bands and they fucked it up. Oh yeah. Right. Like, like really obvious, like fuck up shit, just interpersonal, um, you know, just a, a number of things that just like fucked up so many bands. Like yeah. the variable was still so high. Right. Yeah. Well, there, there was a lot of that thing with the personality, but I will tell and to address that as far as you guys goes, and we talked about that, and this is one of those weird things that is fixed in my mind, and that thing where at that point, I was like, you know, you guys are, it looks like you guys are going to do really well with this. This is really cool. And the conversation came about, came down to like, I know my role. And that's important. Mm. Like, I think it's important for the, for the success of any band is that everybody fills a niche in a band. You're this guy. You're the guy who does this. You're the guy who takes care of this, you know, and in that band, especially at that time, it was like, you guys were the band. And then there was Brian. Yeah. And I'm not saying that in a shitty way yeah. or whatever, you know, like, but like, it was a, we're not trying to push him out of the spotlight. We know yeah. what we're here That's to right. do and, and we're here to succeed. So we're not going to fuck that up. Right. And I was like, and I remember at the time thinking that is a very good attitude because that's, you know, you're doing something because you want to succeed and you're pushing right now because that's attainable. 
And I think that over the years, when all the bands that I watched had their own personal meltdowns, it's because somebody decided that their personal thing and their personal irritations or issues were more important than the success. Mm. Now, I don't fault anybody for that. Sometimes people just don't get along. Yeah, yeah. You know, and there's a, every band has a half-life, you know. <laughs> right. You know, like, and, you know, like, but at the time, like, it's like a don't get too big for your own head before you get where you need to go. That's right. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. there will be there will be time for like separate hotel rooms and cooling <laughs> off periods later. Yeah, right. Like now you guys aren't like now we're not making that kind of money yeah. yet. We have to succeed before we fuck it up. That's right. Not you fucking know? around. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. It's, yeah. You're saying this and I'm like grinning. It's making me feel good because it was it, it is. It's so true. It's like this. But I think that was the upside to a lot of the experience, you know, not just playing in bands, but like doing shows and meeting a million bands and hearing a ton of stories already by that point. It was like, how many cautionary tales do you need before you treat your own band differently? Right. You know? Before you know you know what not to do and exactly. actually implement it. Yeah. Like I know? didn't have to learn the hard way. Like it was like I I seen it happen too many times. I seen it. You know? Yeah. And it was like, yeah, I knew a lot of the pitfalls that you should just like stay away from. And like you said too, I it's not like Brian felt like I was looking for someone like Brian. You know what I mean? I knew I needed to find that guy before I could do what I wanted to do. You know right. what I mean? Because because we play drums and the view That's from right. the back, <laughs> it gives the view from the back gives you that thing. If you don't have a front man, mm -hmm. you don't have shit. That's it. You know. I remember. I I remember my turning point was I played. It was like that second generation of low end theory when we had Ed, and we played this like great. Sh we played like an outdoor gazebo in in some town somewhere. I don't even remember where. And I remember my brother and a couple people said, and they were like, oh, dude, you got, you killed it. You were like the best part of the band. Like, like you really stood out. And my immediate reaction was like, fuck. <laughs> like, I was like, no, not good. Not <laughs> yeah. good. Not good. I'm like, I'm not Tommy Lee. I'm not going to wear Speedos. I'm like, if I'm the thing people are going to here. I'm never getting the fuck out of this gazebo, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, and you know what? And that's, you know, that's true. Like, becoming comfortable as a drummer with knowing your role in that thing. Like, there are very few bands where the drummer is the, the thing that everyone's going to see. And those are bands where the, the drummer, and I'm not shitting on here because I'm shitting on myself if I would, <laughs> where the drummer is just so goddamn good right. that they're overwhelmed. Yeah, like, like, yeah, exactly. Like neither one of us is Terry Bazio. No, no, not not what I do. Not what I do. It looks exhausting to play like that. I don't even want to play like that. I I don't need to hire four guys to put together my drum set. Like, <laughs> right, like, right, right, uh, right. If, and I don't. I wouldn't know what to do with all that shit if it was in front of me. I'd be like, hey, look at this, bing, bing, bong, bong. Even though <laughs> like, you might confuse the shit out of one guy setting up lefty. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm gonna need to turn this all around. Yeah, another story. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, like. And I think that there's something in there, and it's like, this would be for you to identify more than me. I think that one of the things that people forget about band dynamics is, especially when everyone is younger, if your band, like, 
there's always that list of things that like a great like band will have a guy who's artistically inclined and a guy who's you know lyrically inclined and a guy who's a songwriter but there has and a guy who's the organized one and keeps everybody you know yeah. like the logistics guy like the radar o'reilly but there's gotta also be in the background someone has to be the peacemaker yeah you know there has to be one person in there who mature not mature who has to be the peacemaker the guy who can be like all right we're going to compromise we're going to soothe all these ruffled right. feathers and without that that without that element there's it the band itself is doomed to have a shorter half-life because the more frayed tempers get if no one can make peace and sort out an issue things get things get ugly fast for sure i think there is like I don't think those people necessarily have to be peacemakers, but I do think they need to know how to be like tepid water. Right. They got to know how to just like exist in neutral during those times, you know, and, and very consistently stay in neutral. And then I think that that can also work too. You know, people who are just like amendable to whatever's happening, kind of. Right. And, yeah. you know, and then willing to be like, I'm going to talk to you. Until I'll talk you off the ledge, and then I'm going to go talk to the right. other guy, and I'm not going to talk say them shit off the ledge about what that other person said. That's right. the important yeah. part. There's like, there's not going to be. This is going to be the low drama, yeah. like, yeah, 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 yeah. The, like the guy who soothes the feathers. That's right, you know. And that's where in Gaslight Anthem, I got to throw my big man Ian Perkins some credit. <laughs> that, man, talk about social glue. Like, like that guy is a, a genius at, at being social glue, I would say. You know, and like at times, like, you know, like that, that's the heart of the band. The one that, you know, like as long yeah. as that guy's up, as long as that guy's up, everybody else can get up, you know? Yes. And I think it's important, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, moving on from Stupid Gaslight Anthem, I got, <laughs> speaking of our, our, uh, collective friend rick barnhart who i love dearly um he uh told me to ask you about two specific stories that i would like you to uh, embark on a journey with me if you can the first is something about a van war between nora <laughs> and poison the well that okay. was super epic in nature do you remember this one i mean without <laughs> we'll keep it in general terms, but it was, we toured with them a whole bunch of times. Yeah. Um, we did a lot because, you know, for most of the run of Nora, um, because all of us had, had day jobs of some form or another, Carl was running the label in Portland was working for him. We got, you know, we traveled a lot, yeah. but it was a lot of it was for short runs. So we spent a lot of time with them on short runs. And I think that that one was in Canada. Um, it was pretty early on. And, we were got we were on a long stretch. I think it was probably between like Toronto and Montreal, something like that. One place, just one place and another. And they were throwing stuff, and then we were throwing stuff, and this just it escalated. And suddenly there were dildos involved, <laughs> and the side of the van might have been open, and you know, like it, there, there was just you know, it was one of those things. It, it was like one of those. I could never explain to you how it got to the point that it did. <laughs> But just kept there a was, series of it, escalations. It, it was just a, you know, like, oh, they did that. Let's do this, you know, and it just escalated. Not sure where the dildo came from, but yeah, you know. I um, always hated, I was the worst at Van Wars. 
I was like, please don't fuck with my van. And I don't really like doing mischief. I'm like, this all just makes me uncomfortable. I'm like, can we stop? Um, So the other one, he says, this is in quotes. Oh, I know. Ask him about the time Converge crashed at the East Brunswick house. Jinx ate a pack of Cadbury eggs and then took a shit next to Nate's head. That was half wrapped in the foil from the eggs. I mean, I think I, I think that he's got that wrong. Oh, I th- I think that he's got that. That was at the end of Carsey Street, and it it definitely it was. Though my dogs loved actually a loved Converge and loved having people in the house. Your dogs um, loved Converge. Like they loved Converge <laughs> and they loved people in the house, but. I can't remember. I think it was Carsey Street, but he could be right. Because um, if it was if it was at in East Brunswick, I think that might have been Doom Riders. Uh, but no, because okay. if it was Kurt, if it was Kurt, it was probably this story. Apparently, is next to Nate's head. He was yeah. in Doom Riders, right? Yeah, he was in Doom Riders. Okay. Um, I do remember. I do remember Jinx, take, and it was in the middle of the living room, just took a giant shit in the midst of where they were. You know, so like he tiptoed in between their sleeping bags and took a giant shit. There was another incident where he stole Kurt's pillow. What? Um, I know that, I do remember, he snatched the pillow, Kurt was asleep with it, and he snatched Kurt's pillow and ran off with it. While um, he was sleeping? Well, yeah, he was lying down and Jinx had it, took his pillow and ran with what it. What would bring a dog to do that? That's hilarious. He, he was a fucking lunatic. He was a crazy-ass animal. I'm going to steal um, Kurt Ballou's pillow. <laughs> Metal Legends pillow I'm going to yeah. harass in the night. Uh, so, I'm tr- yeah, I'm trying to think. But, I mean, yes, that did, in fact, happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's- um, and I know there was an incident in East Brunswick where Jinx gave himself diarrhea and shit on the floor in the midst of... <laughs> A band, whether it was, I think it was converged, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it it could be Doom Riders, but it happened. Hey, more you want to stay at the house? You know, <laughs> this is what happens, so, right? Every once in a while, something bad happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, one interesting thing to note: you've, I mean, you've said it a couple times through here, but you know, we're telling all these crazy stories, and this is one of the fascinating things to me about your life in general. Is like we just discussed in some terms or another, you know, like almost what at this point, 35 years of activity and like, you know, the punk and hardcore scene doing shows, the houses, the being in bands, but all the while you were teaching and you became a librarian. And this entire time you were a full-time employed librarian in schools. Yes. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Still to pay the I mean, bills. Yeah. Uh, I'm in. I'm in my 24th year of being a teacher. Before that, I was a librarian for, for for Rutgers for about eight years. That's right. Um. So like, well, you know, like, since I think that in retrospect, had like, it, and this was always for me. Like, I always wanted to do more, and had the opportunity presented itself. At that point, I probably would have gone and, and done more, like more touring and more of that stuff. I was always happy to do that. I love doing that, and I still do. Um, but there's an element of responsibility that goes along with it where it's like these guys have a career that they're developing, and I have a career that I'm developing. So we're just going to do as much as we can with what we have. Right. 
you know, with the time we have. And we did that for years and years, you know, and I think like in the case with Nora, like we stopped playing mostly because those guys were so busy and so burnt. That's right. Everybody had, you know, in that one year, everybody had kids. Yeah. 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 You know, and like that adds a whole thing to it, you know, and when like three of the five guys have kids and then we don't have a bass player, it, it was like a slowdown. So like with Nora, like we never actually broke up. We just got really fucking busy. Yeah. You know? Right. And, and like, you know, so now when we, you know, five years later we played and then another five years and then, you know, it's since then we play sporadically and we do our thing. We actually have a show coming up in March. Um, I know. I'm so bummed because Carl yeah. asked me to sing Travelers and I think I'm on tour with Gaslight. Yeah. Well, if you're not, come out I want to do it. I need to dust off my yeah. vocal skills, baby. So, I mean, you know, but there's a there's a thing there that I thought you were going to go for it and I and you were going to touch on but you didn't but there's a thing here that thread here and this is like an intrinsic thing that goes all the way back to the beginning of something that you asked me about and the understanding should be like these guys were my friends they were my whether they were like acquaintance level friends or like super tight friends many of these people are people that like if I see them, I'm ex I'm extraordinarily happy to see them. Yeah. Um, whether they were like road friends or tour friends, or and I'm I'm absolutely sure that you have the same experience. It's like you gather people who are of a like mind, and they become your friends, and then you have a good time. Right. And like I and that's as like I look back and I go, I don't regret any of this. Like I had a great time doing all these things. These were things I did with my friends. Yeah, and like. I've come to a point now where like, you know, like I am in three bands now. Yeah. Uh, like three different things, actually four. <laughs> and um, each one of them is a touch, a touchy piece of different era of my life. Right. Because like I get together with the Headstrong guys and we play and eventually we'll show up somewhere and play a show and it'll be fun. Um, and the guys were a group of dudes that I lived with and was friends with for a really long time. And, you know, I'm doing this stuff with Nora I'm doing that. I'm doing Born Tired with guys who were in bands with me through like Man Alive and Torchbearer. Yeah. Um, and also Ed, you know, who I called because I was like, Ed would be perfect Shout for this out. band. And, and he, he is. is. He is. He's and, perfect you know, for that band. Yeah. And, and temperamentally, he couldn't be more suited also to being in this band. Like he's a fantastic addition. Yeah. And the bass, you know, the bass player for Born Tired transitioned over and is playing bass for Nora too. Nice. Uh, like, and I'm always like, this is a part of my life where I'm like, I get to hang out with my friends. And, it, you know, like, and then I'm doing that miracle worker thing with Peter Hart, who was the guy that introduced me to Mike and Carl. Right. And then we started Nora. Yeah. He was their other roommate. And like t 25 years later, he was like, hey, I uh, learned how to play guitar. And I want to, I want to start, I want to like make some songs into a band. And two years later, you know, we've got like, 12 or 13 songs and Dan Cav is playing bass and you know so like I mean, do it's you a ever run out of energy like sometimes I just listen to your story and that's I think kind of why I was asking because this to be able to do what you do I mean this isn't just playing in bands too like you're often hosting bands you're recording them you're doing like all sorts of shit behind the scenes like which requires you being at school all day every day nine through five right and then 
always having the energy to perpetually have practice, do the band thing, and have a family and take it. Like, where do you get all this energy from? I don't know. (laughs) I I mean, again, it it comes down to like, uh, these are the people, a lot of times, it's an excuse for us to get together, like me to get together with my friends and hang out. And like, the difference now from then is like, like when we lived at Carsey Street, we would practice four times a week because we were just hanging around. We're like, hey, we're not doing anything. We should go play some songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, let's go write a jam. Like, like whatever. Now I have to schedule everything ahead of time. And, you know, part of it is a routine. Like, if I don't have that routine, I actually feel like, like I am missing a chunk of myself. Right. You know, like, this is, at the end of the day, like, I didn't develop a secondary hobby beyond music where I was like, like my secondary hobby was like, Hey, I'm going to learn how to record bands. Yeah. I'm not going to go like play squash. Right. Like I I never took up golf, you know, like, you know, like I'm like, so like I, I have family time and like, you know, I have been graced with, with Jenna who has allowed me to do all this stuff for many years. Um, and you know, because of her, you know, because of her, like sure. I was able to do those yeah, things, yeah, yeah. you know, and I was able to continue to, to do the things. And there have been mo- moments where they've crossed into like, I wanted to do this thing, but I couldn't because I had to go do a work thing. And that's always frustrating. It's never going to not be frustrating, yeah, yeah. you know, because this isn't my job. It's just the thing, I, the, like the thing I really like doing. Yeah, right. Um, and, you know, the other part of it, and as dumb as it is, like, because of going all the way back again to 14, I never developed like a thing of like, I'm going to go out drinking. I'm going to go out to a bar and hang out in that thing. This was the thing. Right. I don't need to be drinking because I'm playing music or this is my, this is my version of drinking. <laughs> you know, That's like right. I get to my, get together with my friends and I yuck it up <laughs> and like we have a good time and then everybody goes home. I love it. It's and like I, after a long day of work, I kick back relax and have band practice. <laughs> right. You know, and uh, you know what though? I mean, and I know that it's you like, know this, It's Bob. like your Miller High Life. It's great. It's, yeah. It's- and like all the things that could go wrong that bring the stress to you at the end of a work day and then you sit down and you practice like on a Tuesday night and it's like an hour and a half and when I'm done, I feel great. Yeah. I'm tired, but all the things, I got to hit stuff you know, I got to hang out with my friends and detox and I'm like, okay, I can face Wednesday because Tuesday night I got to get it all out. That's right. You know? Yeah. So having that as a part of a, my routine, like I am the biggest asshole when I'm not in the very brief interludes where I haven't been in a band and then I'm the biggest asshole because yeah, yeah, yeah. I got no, I got nowhere to let it out if I have nothing to yeah, be involved I with. I, I don't even know how I forget sometimes. I don't know how. I'll be walking around for like a day and a half just being like, I'm fucking pissed. Now I just go downstairs and I play like Led Zeppelin 3 for like 35 minutes. And I'm just like, oh my God, I feel so much better. Like, why didn't I yeah. do What's wrong with me? Like, why didn't I do that before, you know? Um, it is, this is like people get into yoga and it's that physical and yeah. focused release. It's the same thing. It is. It's a yeah. different. It's a different end to that. It's a different road. That's right. To the Zen state. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. However, you got to get there. 
That's how you get there. All right. I have some quick fire New Jersey need to know things real quick before we're out. Okay. Quick check or Wawa? That's a tough call. Um, You think this is going to be a short question, but it's actually not. No, this is complicated. I know it is. Okay. Well, it's more complicated by recent news. Um, I actually just read somewhere that Quick Check is selling off all of their non-gas station stores. They're going to be turning into turning into quick which marts. means highland park's done yeah which means that they may they may turn into a quick mart and then when they turn the when when we when quick check and wawa were both in milltown because they both were oh yeah we always went we rick and i always went to quick check yeah, you asked rick this question this is not a gray area no yeah um, rick is a quick check man yep and i you know and i respect it um their subs were better than wawa's yeah and then they they transitioned to quick mart and they were no longer as good. That's it. So Ugh. that for those who support the quick check, you know, in this equation, it's problematic because if your quick check closes and becomes a quick mart, they don't have the same thing. Mm. You know, um, this is a forever changing question. Jeez. Yeah, this is a these days. If you were going to ask me between the quick mart and the Wawa, I go Wawa. Yeah. But the quick check, there's a special place in my heart for the Highland Park quick check. Yes. And I will I will stop there at any given opportunity and run through there and get a soap. Yeah. I mean, listen, so, I spent years living off the feast after four. And, yeah. Uh, oh, hell yeah. Well, remember, <laughs> we almost convinced that guy at quick check to let us order with a zip line. We were going <laughs> to put a zip line to the side door and a little bell basket of money he was going to take our order okay what is the best diner in new jersey hmm. all the best diners have closed i mean there's i thought i thought this was going to be a a, a quick one because this is our diner i mean the edison diner goes without without saying for me that's the special spot in my heart there's always going to be a special spot in my heart for the edison yeah but it depends on how you define diner, and if, mm. if we're including ones, if we're including ones from the past, like, do we put pennies in there? Because pennies was my jam. I know you're a pennies man. You're the reason I got to eat with botch at pennies. Yeah, right. You know, and you know, there were a lot of people who who missed who messed that place when they closed, but you know, they moved on. Um, I mean, to to be clear though, if anybody's listening to this from our era, you were the only, you were the pennies guy. I love pennies. Were, I used to eat there, there every was day. A lot, you were the only one who put pennies first, I would say. <laughs> that that is that is absolutely true. But I I uh, walked around. Okay, so so no. What? All right. So let's say what is the best active current New Jersey diner? Oh, the Edison Diner. Edison Diner, right? Yeah. Especially especially now because I would have gone had you asked me this five years ago, I would have answered with with the Colonial Diner because they had a salad bar. Yeah. And, and I love their salad bar, but then COVID hit, and they closed the salad bar and have not reopened it. So fuck that place. Done. Dead <laughs> to me. Yep, dead to me. Oh, I love um, that. Um, but yeah, no, I, I would go with with the Edison just for pure reliability. Okay. Everything is the same and good and huge all the time. Well, you and I have had a lot of nights, good nights at the Edison, yeah. where I've watched you smoke a bunch of cigarettes and eat a bunch of bacon and drink a bunch of Diet Coke. And uh, we've had some great conversations. Love you, Chris. This was fun to get to do, man. I love you too, man. And it was, like I said, if I was going to do this, it was going to be with you.
I want to be a fly on the wall yeah. with that phone call with your mom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what listen. I want. <laughs> My mom, I really want to hear that complex woman. <laughs> but let's just say she did not suffer fools lightly. I'm not calling Chris Ross a fool in any way. <laughs> but I do think I do think there was probably like the inner Brooklyn like mom came out. <laughs> so I think this sentiment was probably a lot like like are you fucking kidding me? Like yeah, you know, well, It obviously um, made an impression on you so it was yeah, yeah. it must have been pretty real. <laughs> I got to tell you though in my 15-year-old brain I thought it was a home run. <laughs> I really did. I thought I had like the, the ace up my sleeve. I was like, I was like, yeah, I'm fit. I'm like, I do shows. I play in bands. I'm like, I'm like, it's time for me to hit the road. Like, let's yeah, go to California, you know? And I'm like, I'm like, this guy's like in his mid twenties and he's like a teacher. Like, of course she'll let me go with him, you know? Uh, and yeah. Yeah. I really, I really thought I thought slam dunk. Slam dunk. I'm going to California this summer. No. And I had to wait like four more years for my aunt to fly me out after I graduated high school. You know? <laughs> it was the first time I ever got in an airplane, you know? I was dying to <laughs> I was dying to go somewhere. Were you get... mad at her? Were you like, oh, what the fuck, mom? <laughs> um probably. Yeah. 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 I mean, I can't. I don't know. I really, I seriously, I don't remember. That's why I was like asking right. Ross, like. But if she was already that pissed, I was probably, you know, no, I probably left her alone for like a day. <laughs> if the door was closed, I was like, all right, fine. I'll be out here playing uh, uh, Madden on the computer, you know, right. no one will bother me. <laughs> so, yeah, that shit, you know, but, you know, Ensign, you know, especially like early on, um, you know, when Ross was still in the band and stuff, I mean, they were like, eh, that band really helped me out. I mean, I was doing shows. And I would call those guys. I'd be like, hey, I have an open slot in like three days. Can you play? And they'd end up like drawing all the people and I wouldn't even pay them. It was like ridiculous, <laughs> you know, like how much those people like like put their neck out for me. But, nice. you know, at one point when Ross was my neighbor, I'm pretty sure I even borrowed money from him. Like the whole deal. And, yeah, yeah. you know, this idea that is just like, you know, a bunch of people are going to listen to this episode with a similar story to mine. You know, which is which is awesome. Um, we all need it's like the punk rock, like like Daddy Warbucks or something. I don't know. Right. Um, not that like he's a rich man, but just a generous man. Right. So everybody should uh, listen to his bands, support the man, and uh, you know, remember that history is uh, complicated, and the people with the loudest voices often uh, don't know what the fuck they're talking about. I think that's <laughs> an important lesson to take from this. But Brad, remember, speaking of people not knowing what the fuck they're talking about, we forgot <laughs> to talk about the Patreon again in the intro. At the top. Here we are about three and a half hours into the podcast. <laughs> Hi, we have a Patreon. If you would like to join. Patreon.com slash going off track. It's true. There are things to see and people to talk to. It's a wonderful place filled with poo. You get ad-free podcasts, early release when possible. There is bonus content. There is the um, weekly Discord chat oh, where yeah. you can give Benny shit. Yeah, listen, I had a meeting the other day with some new management, some new social media people. And they're like, have you guys ever heard of um, like Discord? 
And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm on there like once a week. Yeah, like I have a chat on there. I know what's going on. So thank you to you, Brad, and the Patreon for making me seem relevant in meetings. <laughs> like I know what the fuck I'm talking about. It's good. Appreciate it. You're connecting me, you know? Yeah, so go check that out. You find us at Going Off Track everywhere. Um, listen to Born Tired, which yeah. is Chris's new band. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've probably heard at least one of his old bands if you're Many, listening yeah. to this. If you've opened your ears, you've you've heard at least one. That's a fact. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you can follow him at Ulysses213 on Instagram. Shout um, out Ulysses. Same dog yeah. that Popeye from Farside was talking about. That's seems like a very famous dog. He was a great, great animal. I'm great sure. Animal. Um, that's all I have to say this week. Yeah, let's get out of here. All right. I'm done. <laughs>